0: Thank you for joining us for our Renewal City Church podcast. If you're looking for ways to get involved, join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Roxy Theater in Longview, or find us online at rcclongview.org. We hope you're blessed and that this message finds you well. We're in, a, we're in a series uh, called the Learn From Me series. It's based out of Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30, which I will read. Uh, it says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Um, I have the impossible task this morning Um, of trying to articulate fully um, this next kind of principle that we've been pulling out of this series, which is God's love for us. Um, And it's just, it's tough because it's kind of this massive concept, this big overarching piece of God's character is the love he has towards humanity. And so when I was thinking about, like, how do I articulate this? fully um you know i kind of was thinking through scripture that you could you know kind of go the arc of the old testament and how god uses the people of israel consistently and, and uses them and consistently pulls them out of their own nonsense and redeems them and shows his love through that you could pull the story of hosea um, who god calls calls to marry a prostitute which is a really rough call there but the whole idea is this an analogy to be laid out before the people of here's this prophet who is going to be in this relationship that is just massively unhealthy, but consistently um, just pulls her out of her her work, her work as a sex trafficker. And this is an example to the people of Israel of God's love for them and his love for us. Um, You can go to the parables, Jesus' teaching. Um, You can look at Jesus' life itself and how, you know, the example he set for us of how to love others, um, or obviously the cross, which we're going to do later today when we take communion. Um, Or you could go to Romans 8, Paul's teaching, you know, the neither height nor death and angels nor demons, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Um, Or you can just look at the overarching theme of scripture, which is constantly God's love for humanity and how that is playing out in his consistency and his faithfulness towards us. Um, So there's a lot of stuff I could draw from. When I was thinking about it, the, the passage that kept coming to mind was one that I really wasn't excited to talk about which is usually how it goes when, you know, you have this awesome topic. I'm like, oh, I can do all these cool things. And it's like, no, you're going to tell this story that I don't want to tell because I grew up in church and I've heard this story 18,000 times from, you know, flannel graphs in Sunday school to the VeggieTale version to, you know, preach from people in the pulpit. So this is the one that you guys are stuck with this morning. So I apologize in advance. But please don't tune me out when I, you know, we're, we're talking about the prodigal son and this parable that Jesus um, that Jesus um, gave to, to a crowd. Um, and I heard it preached once when I, back when I was in college, and it kind of shifted a little bit for me because when you put this glorious thing in Scripture called context and some historical background and some of those little elements and you tie them all together, it can really change the way a story really takes on meaning. So um, I hope that some of the things I add in um, this morning do something to you. Um, that changes that story a little bit. Um, So let's dive in. I'm going to pray first, and then uh, we'll go for it. Uh, Jesus, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for this group of people. Um, I thank you for uh, your love for us, and I'm excited to to tell them a little bit more about this. And I pray that um, through my words you would speak, and we'd leave this place this morning feeling a little bit more of your love. Amen. A.W. Tozer has a quote What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I think this is really significant. A little personal story. I grew up in the church, as I said, and I came from a religious background in a a church setting that was was very concerned about um, bringing God your best. So you'd, you know, when I was this tall, I wore a little like clip-on tie and suit to church. And um, it was adorable. Uh, what? I was a cute kid. I was like five foot until I was in midway through high school. Um, so it was very concerned with appearance and this, this idea that you have to avoid the appearance of evil in order to kind of do your Christian duty. And so and my image of God was largely based off of that, for better or for worse. And so growing up, I, I kind of pictured God being not like angry at me all the time, but just kind of disappointed. And part of that is my own personality trait and my characteristics toward myself um, is I always kind of wish I was a little bit further along than I am. And uh, I just kind of felt like that was God's persona when he was thinking about me, right? It's like, I'm walking along, I'm doing my life and inevitably I screw up because that's what we do because we're human. And then God was just kind of like, really? Like, really? Like, come on, like, you're better than that. Let's move on. You're, you know, be, be further along than you are. And that was kind of my perception of who God was. It wasn't that he was unloving or that he hated me for any reason, that he was just always a little bit, like, bummed out that I wasn't better. Um, And that honestly stuck with me through, like, college years until I had, like, a massive transformation of my faith that completely changed how I operated. And that's why I think this quote is so profound. C.S. Lewis also has a quote I'd like to to read. um, He says, I read in a periodical the other day, that the fundamental thing is how we think of God. By God himself, it is not. How God thinks of us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. Indeed, how we think of him is of no importance except in so far as it relates to how he thinks of us. So it begs the question, what does God think about us? What's What's his perspective on humanity? It's a profound question because it depending on our answer to I'd argue both of these questions, what do we think of God and what does God think about us completely defines how our Christianity plays out. And I I mean, this is this is my two cents here, but I think a lot of the issues that we see in, in churches and even in people is because they have an idea of of what God thinks of them or what God thinks about the world and what God thinks of us personally, and that plays out in unhealthy or, or dangerous ways, or in ways we're trying to appease God or do something to, to fill this void. Um, but I don't believe that's true, um, and I'm going to give some evidences for that. Uh, some of you might know I work in education. I'm an administrator, um, and I also teach, so here is my, my teaching coming out in my sermon planning for this week. Here's your vocab for the day. So big 10-cent word, big theological term. I'm sure I'm going to butcher this, but Heath will uh, correct me later. Uh, the word perichoresis. This is your first word of the day. Perichoresis is the term referring to the relationship of three persons of a triune god to one another. So, stick with me. We're going to dive into some theology a little bit. So, perichoresis this concept that our god is three in one, right? Father, son, holy spirit, trinity. He's one together. And there's this idea that he's been in relationship or community with himself forever, outside of time, right? God outside of time. And so there's, there's this concept in Christianity that this community has been taking place forever within the Godhead. Okay, second vocab word, not quite as fun, uh, agape love. I'm sure you guys are familiar with this, if you grew up in church at all, um, with this term agape love. It's just the highest form of love possible. Now, this is the form of love This agape love that is present in the Godhead, in this perichoresis, right? So we have to kind of, this is getting deep, but this love in this community has always been, always will be, outside of time, has always existed. This form of love is the love that God not only only has within himself, but also towards us. And this is a really difficult concept to grasp because we always have to pull from what we know about love, right? We think about, you know, analogies of a father loving their child or love in in relationship, in marriage, or something like that. But we we don't quite grasp the the massiveness of the love that God has for us because it's so outside of everything. That's why this morning is so difficult for me. So I have to try to articulate a type of love that has always existed And is existent in the triune God itself, which is really difficult to do. But fortunately, this lovely gentleman, Jesus, uh, helps us out a little bit. If you want to grab your Bibles and go to Luke 15, or pull out your phones or devices, that is where we're going to be camping out this morning. Um, As I said earlier, context is very important when you're uh, reading something in Scripture. And so... Um, we're going to be in Luke fifteen eleven is the, the parable of the, of the prodigal son. But before we get to that, I want you to look at Luke 15, one through 2, those first two verses of the chapter, because this sets up um, kind of the entirety of this teaching. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So the audience that Jesus is speaking to, he's sitting around, they're having a meal. It's primarily tax collectors, sinners, criminals, scum of the day. And you kind of imagine this scene, at least how I imagine it, is they're kind of having this meal up front. And you kind of can picture the teachers of the law and the Pharisees kind of standing back a little bit with their arms crossed, kind of like they're listening and they're kind of judging what's taking place. Right, so they're also present. And this is the setting for, uh, for the teaching. And then we have... Jesus, um, before he gets to this story, he tells the story of the lost sheep, which I'm sure you're familiar with, um, you know, this shepherd that leaves the 99 and goes and gets the one, um, and also tells the story or the parable of the lost coin, the, the widow who searches her house finding the lost coin. So it's, he has these two stories, and then we dive in um, to the story of the prodigal son. So let's go ahead and dive in. I'm going to warn you ahead of time. I'm going to, like, read a little bit break it down, read a little bit, break it down. If that drives you nuts, I'm sorry. But that's what we're doing, because I have the microphone. So let's, uh, verse 11. Jesus continued. So he's told these two stories, and now he continues. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided the property between them. Let's pause. Um, There's a lot here in these first two verses So what the son is really asking of the father, he's saying, he's not just saying, I want an advance of my paycheck or my allowance. He's telling his father, I wish you were dead. I'm not a fan of you, and I want what's due me now. Now, again, this is not a simple transaction. The father has to, like, go to the bank and say, okay, what do I have? Divide by two and pull it out. No, he's saying, I want my share of the estate, Now, I don't know how many of you are into financial planning, but it's not easy to pull your money out of an IRA early. If you own property, if you own a house, I mean, right now it's a seller's market, but like the father has to spend a lot of time and energy to go divide everything he has, right? We're thinking agriculture, society... As we, as we um, read later in the scripture, the father's wealthy. He has servants, meaning likely he has a lot of livestock and land. And so he has to take the time and energy to go and divide this up and sell stuff off. He has to find people to buy the land. He has to sell servants and livestock and gather all of this stuff together to give the son the part of his estate. This would have taken a lot of time. Right? Not just like, okay, here, well, swipe, you know, Venmo me that. Okay, I'm out. No, this is like months it would have taken to do this. It would have been significant, and it would have wrecked the father's future financially. Right? I don't know if any of you are close to retirement, but if I was to say, hey, half of your retirement is just gone now, that screws people up. Now, here's the most amazing thing. The father doesn't have to do this. Any, any Jewish person would understand that the father could just been like, no, and disowned the son and said, absolutely not. You're, you're not going to wish me dead. You're going to say bankrupt myself. No, you're, you're gone. He could have disowned him in that moment, and that would have been completely acceptable. But he doesn't do that. He invests. He goes. He sells everything, divides in half, gives the son his portion. Verse 13. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered wealth in wild living. So after the father gathered up all the stuff, he gave it to him not long after, the son left. Um, And he went to a distant country. Again, took a while. Gathered all his stuff together and left. And squandered on wild living. This is, I mean, anything you can imagine, right? Vegas or... Um, you know, if you're get feeling a little crazy, go to A and you know, just squander all you have on wild living. Um, this was significant because this disregard for his family's tradition or reputation. Right? I mean, this is a, a Jewish boy who likely just completely disregarded all of the ancient Jewish laws when it came to um, eating certain types of food or obviously acts of sexuality and just decided, no, I don't care, and I'm just going to do what I would like to do. Um, and this is my own like reading into the scripture here, but I imagine I mean this it's a distant land we see in scripture, but I would imagine that word's starting to spread around the town. Right? If you have a, a child that, that takes half of what you have, that's a significant event. People are going to be like, why are they selling all their stuff? I thought they were getting ready to retire. Like, and, and you see the son leave, and you see, where is he going? And then you start to hear rumors floating around of, well, I heard he was off here and doing this, and you're completely disregarding his father. Like, br- the younger son was bringing all this shame onto his father consistently. And again, this was likely a large sum of money. So this probably took a long time. He was probably gone for years, spending money just frivolously as he chose. Verse 14, after he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him in fields to feed pigs. Um, When you're in a agriculturally based society, famine is significant. Um, This is like 2008 hit, essentially, in modern terms. And if you are a young boy who doesn't have a lot of skills, and he's still in this country, his reputation is likely known at this time for being one who's not very responsible, and you're trying to find a job uh, in the middle of an economic crisis, there's not going to be a lot available. I think what also is, uh, another significant thing here is um, he's sent out to feed pigs, I don't know how much you know about um, Jewish tradition and pork, but they don't really mesh together well. I mean, Jewish people, if if they touched an animal that was considered unclean as a pig was, they had to go through a whole ritual to become clean again after touching one of these animals. So not only is he working a very, very bottom of the barrel minimum wage job, this is a shameful, embarrassing minimum wage job, right? He is... He is doing a very, very dirty work here. Uh, Verse 16. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Uh, Anybody know what pigs eat? Anything. Like there's CSI episodes where like they feed bodies of people to pigs and the pigs are just like, cool. So pigs will eat anything and we're in the middle of a famine So what do you feed an animal who eats anything during a time where there's a lack of food? This is what's being slopped out, is whatever is there, and this is what he is wanting. So he's in a state of desperation at this point. Um, I've been really hungry before. But this is a whole other level. I mean, you've got to imagine that the, the son is like, he's looking scrawny and scraggly. He's probably lost a lot of weight. He's sickly, and he's just ashamed. He's in this bad spot. Verse 17, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out, go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. Um, this apology that he's rehearsing here—the father, I've or I've sinned against heaven, I've sinned against you. Um, this is not an authentic apology. This is not something he's like, man. What can I say? Like, you know, he's not trying to like gather his words and come up with a speech that'll be like really good to try to win back his father's affection. This is a um a traditional Jewish sentiment that he would say. Nothing special, nothing unique. And he, he crafts it based on his own need. He's still not even thinking about the damage he's caused to his father. He's simply thinking about his own survival at this point. He's saying, man, I'm really hungry, and I could at least go to dad's house and get a bite to eat and live, right? I mean, I don't know if you know these people that, like, they only show up when they need something, and they have some excuse that, you know, or whatever, some apology. This is what he's preparing. You know, essentially this is the equivalent of being like, hey, my bad. And then he's, that's it. Like that's, that is this apology that he's crafting towards his father. And uh, we see that he has this plan. And he, he gets up and he, and he starts heading home. I love this next verse. But while he was still a long way off. How do you see someone um, when they're a long way off unless you're looking for them? I I just, again, this is me painting my own images into the story, but I just imagine the father sitting on the front porch every day, likely for years, right? I mean, this is a large sum of money. So, and the son has been gone and then he's experienced the famine and he's been feeding pigs for we don't know how long. Like, it it could be years, and you just, I don't know, I just imagine the father every morning getting up and walking out to the porch and staring up the driveway at the horizon line and just hoping and praying that he will see the silhouette of his son. Just every day, consistently, consistently, consistently. So while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Um, we don't understand this in our current context, but again, the father would have been a you know, head of household type of person. Um, and uh, if you're the head of house, you have servants and, and people literally called runners that do, do errands for you. If you are a head of house, you don't run that's not something you do this this is wildly culturally inappropriate for the father to do for any reason but he doesn't care he throws off any of the um the, the predispositions the cultural norms and he and he, he sprints after his son and he greets him with a kiss the significance in this culture of greeting with a kiss is a welcoming for a friend right not, this isn't a bow this isn't a handshake he he wraps his arms around him and greets him with this greeting that is significant of one that is loved the son said to him father I have sinned against heaven and against you I'm no longer worthy worthy to be called your son he he says his half-hearted apology that is two sentences you know dad I, I not hey sorry for bankrupting you and bringing shame on the family and like I mean he, it's Two sentences for for years of abuse and neglect and, and what he's caused. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fat and calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Um, the ring on his finger is significant because... Uh, rings signify ownership. In this time period, they, they would sign official documents and they would take the ring you know, and, and dip it in a wax seal in order to, to signify you know, the family approval on the signature of her business deals and, and, and such. And so the father saying to bring a ring to put on his fingers is so significant because it's not just saying, um, hey, my son's back home, let's take care of him, right? No, no, he's, he's putting him back at the same level of, of ownership, of sonship that he was the day he left. There has been there has been no change from the father towards the son in love. Now, I, I'm not a parent. I would say this is a very irresponsible move. I mean, it, I don't know. Um, I, I don't understand the, the love a, a parent has for their child, at least from the, the parent to the child, but... I can't imagine if, if one of my children, like, you know, took half of everything I owned and just, like, wasted it and drug my name through the mud and, uh, and then came back and said, like, hey, whoops, <laughs> Mondays, right? Like, I wouldn't be like, cool, here's everything that you want. Like, that's not a wise move. But this is exactly what the father does. Instant forgiveness, instant, like, rest- like rest- reinstating back to the sonship level that he was. And if if you know the story, it goes on and it talks about the the older son and and he hears all this commotion because there's a party and he comes back and he's mad because of all this stuff, which I never really understood why that was in scripture for a long time, Um, actually until I was studying for this. And um, if we go back to that context that we set is who are the two groups of people listening to this story? It's the tax collectors and sinners and it's the Pharisees. I, I I just imagine Jesus kind of smirking when he tells this last part and, and, like, peeking in the back and seeing if they're listening, right? The two groups are the people that, you know, that go off and live the crazy lifestyle, and the others are this group of people that are doing the correct things but have no love in their hearts. And this is Jesus' audience. Um. To get a little vulnerable, um, the last two years, I don't know about anybody else. They've been a little rough for me, um, and my relationship with the Lord has been struggling at best. Because um, the world's really broken, and it's just—I feel like every day we're just abundantly aware of that. Um, and especially in like the last month, give or take, um, just my prayer life—I've just—I've—I've I've been really angry. And I've started to ask God questions like, when are you going to step in and do something? Right? Like, I, I don't know. I just, I look at, at the world in, in front of us and uh, I was listening to this song last couple of weeks that John Foreman put out called, Jesus, I Have My Doubts. And, like, it's one of those songs that, like, if you put it on in the wrong mood, you just, like, sit in your office and weep, and, like, students are walking by. Like, what's wrong, Mr. Backstrom? It's, yeah, but it's just, he, he has this line of, like, Jesus, I'm sure you've got your reasons, but I have my doubts. And that just fully articulates, like, the emotion I've been walking through is, like, what's going on, and when do you step in, and, and why are you not intervening in these situations? And I've really started to question, like, the goodness of God, and I just imagine, like, if you were to go up to any person that you were had any kind of relationship with and just told them, like, to their face, I don't know if you're good. Like, imagine the ramification that that would have for that relationship. Especially a divine relationship where this person has been in relationship with himself and their defining characteristic is goodness and has always been goodness and love. And then here I stand, a 27-year-old, staring up into the sky and saying, I don't think you're good, right? The ignorance of that statement, I'm aware of it, but that's just been my emotion. And what's so amazing is like, even in that, even in this season that I've been walking through, and even that season that I feel like a lot of us are walking through, God is still looking at us and he's like, no, it's still 100% love. Like me questioning the very character of God doesn't change his love towards me. And that's crazy. It doesn't make sense. And that's why, again, this is such a hard thing to articulate, is even in my questioning of his very character, his love for me doesn't change. Our actions don't dictate God's love for us. And this isn't passivity towards sin. This doesn't mean we get to just like go off and live the crazy lifestyle because there's consequences to that that are damaging and God wants us to flourish and, and not walk through those things. But even when we inevitably screw up, as Bob Goff would say, we need to fall forward, right? Fall towards the Father, and he's always right there. So um, how does this apply to us? Um, I kind of broke it down into two parts. There's a, there should be an internal shift and an external shift. Um, how is our vision of God skewed? We need to be kind of constantly checking in with ourselves and thinking, what, what do we think about God and who he is? And how is our vision of who he is wrong, or does, how, how does it need to be adjusted or just tweaked a little bit, right? Because he's he's this massive deity entity that we're trying to understand, and it's impossible to do, and we do so poorly often. So we need to constantly be, be checking ourselves and and asking how how are we off, um, and then we need to be thinking about how does he actually view us. It's kind of a really deep heavy question but it's something that's likely there somewhere in how you operate is what does god actually what do you what do you think god thinks about you is it is is he disappointed is he ashamed is he angry does he not even care is you you have this picture of god being kind of distant and like if you pray or shout really loud enough he'll finally come down and step into a situation like what is your view of him and be honest in that um, the last thing for internal is just to be honest in prayer. Um, this really changed my faith um, a couple years ago when I stopped trying to, like, put caveats and taglines on the end of everything and just started praying very honestly and just, you know, just was very real and honest. Because God already knows. He, we, you know, if we believe he's an all-knowing God, why do we try to sugarcoat everything and be like, I'm not sure what's going on over here, but... I'm sure there's a plan, right? Like, we don't have to do that with him. We can be honest and vulnerable. A God who is 100% love and that won't change, even regardless of how we pray, should receive the most honest prayers from us. Um, Thinking externally, how should this um, change how we do things in our lives? Um, This love that God has that we're describing and articulating is not just for those who identify as Christians or those who attend Renewal, or Americans, or those that align with your political party. This is for all people across the board. Um, and out of this love, I mean, we've been talking about it the last couple of weeks, but, like, this love should cause us to want to be peacemakers and to show mercy towards others and all the other things that will be preached in the next coming weeks. Um, the last thing is it should, um, it should generate humility in us. Uh, Romans 12, 2. What Paul says is, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. Right? If if God's love for me is the exact same as it is for everyone else in the world, then I should not operate as if I have some leg up on somebody. Right? We should operate in this humility of understanding that um, the love that God has for me extends to everyone else. So... To kind of summarize those applications, it's grace and honesty with ourselves, right? Having grace on ourselves as we continually screw up, but understanding that love that God has for us, and honesty in ourselves in prayer, and then humility and love with others, not thinking um, of ourselves as better than other people, but understanding God's love and how it applies to all of them and applying it in our actions as well. Uh, Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that um, you are a loving God, and despite our, our doubts, our insecurities, our frustrations, our anger, um, you continue to show your love to us consistently. I pray that as we, um, as we walk through this difficult season of life that we've all been going through, that you'd continue to show that love obviously and clearly, and that you'd um, continue to reveal your love for us in new ways. Amen. Um, so there's a couple discussion questions um, for your tables. Uh, the first one is, what is one misconception you have had about who God is? Um, why do we continually find it hard to love other people? And um, what does walking in love with the Father look like? You sp- look look like for you specifically. So uh, go ahead and take some time in your uh, groups to discuss, and then we'll close in some worship.